morning. It's a privilege for me to be here this morning with you and to have the honor to serve God's Word, to serve the meal this morning. My opening illustration was going to work better if there wasn't a flag. You'll see why here in a second, so hopefully it won't be controversial. Um, But I'm going to use it anyway because it fits with the point that I'm trying to make in, in our opening statements in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. A few years ago, I was in my fifth year of pastoring the church in Argentina. A lot of questions as a pastor, trying to understand certain things about membership and leadership. And so on my furlough, I had a chance to visit Capitol Hill Baptist Church, where Mark Dever pastors. He's the leader of a ministry called Nine Marks, which focuses on building healthy churches. And I went to something called a weekender. And a weekender is where pastors come in and during a weekend observe certain things about the life of a local church and get to see an elders meeting, get to see a members meeting. Um, And during the time, he told different stories about his journey as a pastor to encourage younger pastors. And one of the stories he told illustrates the nature of the local church and also how it's wise when you come into a church that's been there for a while to make slow and progressive changes. So one of the stories was he decided that it would be wiser to not have a flag up front. There was a, a, a flag that was probably a, quite a bit closer to the pulpit, and he knew there were people in the congregation that would not be in agreement to, he was a new pastor there, and there would not be in agreement with removing the flag. And so he took advantage of a season where the church was doing reconstruction, and of course it was their building, so they had decisions on how to do things, and at that time when they'd already taken the flag out, he didn't put it back up. And there were some members in the church that were upset about that. Uh, But his point was, the reason he did that is because he wanted to be clear that when we gather as a church, we gather as foreigners in this land, we gather on this planet as citizens of a kingdom that is not from this world. He wanted to be clear that as a church, we don't have a particular identity with a particular nation. Not that he was not patriotic. He just believed that the church is the time where we send the clear message that we are an international community with a message that is from another kingdom. Interesting story. I was preaching the same passage I'll be preaching this morning. And... It was a church in Argentina, and there was a big Argentine flag. It was closer, and I didn't see it. And this time I, see, I saw it, so I kind of warned you guys. And it, the point is not to make a comment about a church and a flag, a flag in a church. But the whole time I'm sharing this illustration, I'm pointing, pointing to the side, illustrating what this pastor was saying about not having a flag, and the whole time there's an Argentine flag there. Uh, And I realized once I got down, there was a huge Argentine flag that I kept pointing to. Uh, I didn't get invited back to preach at that church. Don't know if there was a relationship or not. Once again, the point is not why we should or shouldn't have a national flag near the pulpit. Rather, the point is to illustrate that our identity, our loyalty, devotion as a church, is one that is beyond one particular nation, even as we live in a particular country, just like this church in Argentina, just like a church in the United States. As God's people, we are part of an eternal kingdom 
We have a heavenly citizenship. King Jesus is our supreme authority. And so independently, and I know in this church there's several nationalities, independently of your nationality, independently if you are a U.S. citizen, the Bible describes us as foreigners. All of us are foreigners in that sense. Because our citizenship is ultimately heavenly. Our ultimate loyalty is to an eternal kingdom, to a heavenly citizenship. And so here's the main idea I want to look at in our sermon today that is derived from Daniel chapter 1. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. The text that we heard read this morning is related to the theme of this chapter. And we'll be looking at the whole first chapter of Daniel 1. But here's the main idea that I want us to look at in Daniel 1 as it applies to us today. As foreigners in this world, we are called to live in the midst of it without defiling ourselves, and we are to live showing the superiority of our God. As foreigners in this world, we are called to live in the midst of it without defiling ourselves, and we are to live showing the superiority of our God. And I want to look at four things that we'll see in the passage. Let us go to the Lord once again in prayer and ask His help as we unpack His Word. Gracious Father, thank You for this book. is a precious book. It is a timely book. As every week it seems like we see something in the news that is more disturbing, that is more unsettling. Certainly these are very unique times. And yet Daniel himself was living in his lifetime very unique times as a nation that was led captive by Babylon. And so we pray that as we open this book that we might receive comfort, encouragement, edification, that you would use your eternal word to remind us of our ultimate hope and loyalty and focus as we are foreigners, and we are here but a short season. May you use this time to edify the saints, and if there is someone here who is not a saint, that you might convert them through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of your word, through the work of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I I want us to look at is in verse 1 and 2. This is the first point. We, like Daniel... We, like Daniel, live in a foreign land. Now, we don't live in the same way that Daniel was living in a foreign land. We are not exiled to another country. But there is a parallel with how Daniel and his friends and God's people were in a foreign land and how we are described in the New Testament as being in a place that is not our home. So verse 1 and 2 is going to give us some historical context. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. One of the things that is marvelous about our Christian faith is it is based on historical facts. You constantly see passages that describe a place on the map and a place on a timeline. This, this really happened. This is approximately uh, 605, 
There were three times that Babylon took captives from uh, Judah, which was the, the uh, portion of Israel, the divided kingdom that was still unconquered. 722 B.C., Assyria had invaded the ten tribes of the north. And then in 605, you're going to see the first captives that go to Babylon. You're going to have two more of these, one in 597 and then one in 586. 586 is the year that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So 605 is the time that this happens. Uh, we know from other scriptures that the reason that God's people are in captivity is because of mainly two things, idolatry and not, keeping, uh, not giving the, the land a sabbatical rest. And so for 70 years, uh, or for 490 years actually, Israel had not given the land the rest it needed to give it every seven years. And so God's going to give the land rest for 70 years by taking his people captive. But also because of the abundant idolatry that was present to the point that the nation was doing the practices of the peoples around them. They were sacrificing their own children to foreign gods. It was that devoted that they were to the point of killing their own kids uh, for other gods. And you'll see in the Old Testament, God sends prophets over and over and over, warning God's people to repent. You see this theme often throughout Scripture that God is slow to bring judgment. He does not delight in bringing judgment. He delays His judgment. But there comes a time when enough is enough. Jeremiah 7 describes some of this. It says, But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. In Deuteronomy 28, God makes a covenant with his people before they enter the land. They have left Egypt and they're about to enter into the land and there is a list of blessings for obedience and a list of curses for disobedience. And Deuteronomy 28, 36 says, the Lord will bring you and your king, after it describes the curses if they abandon their God, and here's what it says, whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a whore, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. And in that same chapter, verse 49, he says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old, nor, nor show favor. To the young. And this is exactly what happens. So we see when we get to the book of Daniel, God has fulfilled his word in bringing judgment. In fact, it's interesting. We have 
something called the Babylonic Chronicles. It's a discovery, an archaeological discovery, where it is written uh, from the Babylonic culture about these different invasions. And it describes this very text that we see here. It describes King Jehoiakim. It appears in, in this writing outside of the Old Testament confirming the veracity of these passages. But verse 2 is going to describe why this happened. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God takes the credit for this. If you look at the Babylonic Chronicles, it just describes from Babylon's perspective, they have conquered this nation, and from their perspective, their gods are superior to this nation. From God's perspective, is this is what God did. He used Babylon to judge his people. And God's going to take his people into a land of idols. It's almost as if God is saying to his people, you like idols? I'm going to take you to land where that's all you're going to see. Let's see how it goes with you. Walverd notes that after the captivity, there are no indications of Israel being tempted to worship foreign gods. Through this discipline, Israel got healed of worshiping foreign gods. Verse 2 is going to mention a location. It's going to say the land of Shinar. It says that he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God which was a way of saying our gods are superior to your God. Shinar is another way to describe Babylon. In fact, if you look at the passage of the Tower of Babel, uh, it describes in Genesis 11, it describes this very place, this location of Shinar. And so often throughout the Bible, Babylon is pictured, is depicted as a place that is hostile towards the faith of God's people. In fact, the very last book of the Bible in Revelation, you have a tale of two cities. Jerusalem and Babylon, because it is often portrayed as this is the enemy of God's people. And this is where Daniel is, and he's going to spend most of his life, actually, in this foreign land. Brothers and sisters, the fact is, and we perhaps feel it more than ever today, we too are in a hostile territory to our faith. Jesus in the New Testament would say that his kingdom does not belong to this world. We are foreigners. Jesus would also say the world hates us as it hates Jesus. The world is the system that opposes itself to God. In fact, only when the Christian adapts throughout church history his message does he not receive some kind of opposition. When we come together as a church, we are like an embassy to our heavenly citizenship. We gather to remind ourselves of our identity. We gather to hear the words of our King before we scatter because we are listening to His words, the very words of God, and He is our King. Even though we are foreigners, we do not isolate ourselves from this world. Daniel was right in the middle of the culture. Look at verses 3 through 7, which is my second point. We are called to understand and live in the midst of the culture where God has placed us. Verses 3 through 7. Then the king ordered 
Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the, of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he offered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice foods and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Asariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Asariah, Abednego. God providentially places them in a context where they will learn the Babylonian culture, Daniel and his friends. In fact, we see the same thing with the life of Moses, don't we? Moses was equipped by God to do the work that he would do and write in the Pentateuch because God placed him in the very courts of Pharaoh. So Daniel found himself in a program of preparation for the royal court. The training and the language, the culture, their names would change in the east. If you change a name, it's showing, or if you give a name, it's showing authority, possession over that person. Adam named the animals because of his authority over creation that God had given him. Daniel and his friends and God's people are suffering the effects of God's discipline. Even if Daniel personally hadn't sinned, and the way that his people did. He's suffering the discipline of God. Most likely, other Jews did not remain faithful to their God. This training that they went through, they just adapted into the culture. What's interesting, as we see the names of these four that Daniel focuses on, is that they are names that have the name of God in them. And this points to the fact that they were raised and Families that knew God, that worshipped God. Because remember, Israel had abandoned God and were worshipping other idols. And as we see their lives, we're going to see how they stood strong in their faith in the midst of their living in a hostile world. And this should be an encouragement for us as parents to prepare our kids for the hostile world that we live in. The faith of these teenagers, and very likely they were teenagers at the time, would be indeed tested. God is going to place them literally in the place where they're going to get the best education in the world. They're going to learn also the religion. They're going to learn how the Babylonians think. It was Jerome that said they studied to learn how to refute. So we have these four that the text mentions as those remaining faithful. Very likely the rest did not. The fact is that God has placed every one of us in some context. Acts 17 says that God has determined the exact places and the exact times where we should live. It is not by accident that we are living in 2020, October, in this country, at this time, in the cities that we're at. God has placed us where we're at, and He is sovereign over that, and He has intentionally allowed us to be in a context where we are to be a light. In fact, Jesus prays in John 17 that uh, God the Father would not remove his children from this world. 
we are to be in the world and not of the world. That has always been the challenge of the church, is to be in the world, but not of the world. And Daniel and his friends are going to do this well. They're in the world. They're in the heart of the culture, but they're not going to be of the world. So the family relationships that you have, the neighbors that you have, none of those relationships exist by accident. You are his child. We are to pray that God would open our eyes for the opportunities around us because we are ambassadors of Christ. The New Testament says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that is what we are called to do. Each one of you are in a context that I can't be in, that others can't be in, because it's unique to you. And so don't waste it. We are called to live in the midst of this world. And we are called to minister as earthly kingdoms rise and fall. Because Daniel was called to minister as earthly kingdoms rise, and then they fell. He's going to see Babylon fall. So we have no promises in Scripture concerning particular nations today, how long a nation will last, as we do with the nation of Israel. Uh, our prayers are to be towards this nation, that there would be conditions that the gospel could spread. Paul talks about the need to pray for kings and those in authority, that we might live peaceful and tranquil lives, and that the gospel would spread. And it's good and it's right for us to pray that. But ultimately, our hope is not in how long a particular nation will last. One author describes it this way. He says, At its height in the beginning of the 19th century, the British Empire was the largest power in history. By 1922, it governed over 450 million people, one-fifth of the Earth's population at the time, and covered more than 13 million square miles. It was known as the empire on which the sun never sets. Viewed against the larger backdrop of human experience, however, its greatness was relatively short-lived. By July 2013, it had been reduced to only one out of 28 countries that would constitute the much smaller and less powerful European Union. Of course, things have changed since he wrote this. Other powerful countries of the world today can learn from this example. The ultimate kingdom of the sovereign God in which we are privileged to play a small part is the only one that endures forever. And so we are called to live in this world and minister in its best of times and in its worst of times. And the way we can minister to this world is because we are different than this world. Jesus has called us out of this world. We are to be different. And this leads to my third point. Number three, we are called to not defile ourselves. And I think I might have put it wrong. It should be verse 8 through verse 13. There's an expression in Argentina that says, Somos sapos de otro pozo. We are toads from another well. And it's used in the context of like, I don't fit here. I don't belong here. I don't feel like this is my natural environment. And that's how the scripture describes us. And we are called that even as we are to be in this world, we're to be engaged in this world, that we are called to not defile ourselves. We're going to see that Daniel is a man of God. 
He is a man of prayer. Chapter 2, when his life uh, is in danger because Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill all the wise people for not telling him his dream, he prays. He goes to the Lord in prayer. And God provides and protects. Chapter 6, he was praying a certain amount of times, three times a day. And the envious political leaders around him were trying to find the way to make him stumble. And the only way they could do that was concerning his religion. And he keeps doing what he was always doing, which is to pray. And God protected and provided. And so we see in Daniel someone who is committed to holiness. He is committed to a holy life in the midst of the world that he is in. Look at verse 8. It says, but Daniel made up his mind. Daniel made up his mind. Literally, he said upon his heart. There is a prior decision, determination to be different than everything around him. So my question for you this morning, is there that determination to say, I will follow my king regardless of what the world pressures me to do? And then specifically, we're going to see in the text that he, is, that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. And so we don't know exactly if that's foods that were prohibited in the Levitical code, which is possible, or if it was foods that were sacrificed to idols, or maybe both. Either way, Daniel knew that having these foods would be to defile himself. And it would be to violate his conscience, to violate what God's words had revealed for him at that time. He was far from his home. He was far from the temple. But he was determined. He could have used all that as an excuse. As Joseph, when he was far from his family and he was in a foreign land, he was determined to keep himself pure in a pagan society. And we're going to see how God is going to be gracious and act on his favor in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. In other words, my life is in danger. What you're asking, you're putting my life in danger. And so you're going to see Daniel's going to respond with a request. He's now going to talk to someone else. Verse 11, Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. Pit me to the test for 10 days. Calvin believed that God had revealed this particular diet. We don't know that. The text doesn't indicate specifically why it was that diet. Perhaps it was just easier to avoid any meat just in case that was a meat that he couldn't have or it was sacrificed to idols. But the point is that God guided and God provided for his obedience. 
God honors your obedience. Even if things don't go as you would have expected, God will never place us, He will never place you in a situation where you had no choice but to sin. You had no choice but to sin. I remember there was a, uh, a new member in the church in Argentina who was maturing in his faith. And his phrase often in a, in a culture where there's a lot of corrupt things and often things aren't black as, and white with the way you do things with the government, but he would, he would say often to me, I had to lie. I had to lie to get this done. When is it okay to sin? God will never place us in a situation that we have no choice but the sin. We are foreigners. We are called to live in this world, and we are called to not defile ourselves. And the fact is, we can't do this. We are incapable of doing this. And this is where the gospel comes in, the good news, that we need a vital connection to our Savior daily. And it's because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he died on our behalf, that he became our substitute, that he took upon himself the wrath of God, rose from the dead the third day, and then sent his spirit to all of those who would believe, that we're able to obey the commands that we would never be able to obey. We are not holy. We can't live this way apart from him. So as we look at this and we think about, okay, we're foreigners, we're called to live in this world, we're called not to defile ourselves, we will get defiled. In fact, we will struggle with our sin. That's why Isaiah says, woe unto me when he sees God's holiness. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The mouth speaks what's in the heart. My heart is not clean. None of us can say that our hearts are clean. But we are to live this way depending upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, depending on our vital connection to Him. We can't live apart from Him this way, but in Him we can. God will honor our obedience. Look at verse 15. He's going to describe that at the end of the ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. God honored the obedience of these men. Over and over, we face dangers. They're going to face dangers. We face dangers where we're tempted not to be faithful to our Lord. And we're going to see that God is going to intervene over and over to fulfill His sovereign purposes throughout the whole book of Daniel. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be different. We are called to be supremely loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. One author challenge us with the, challenges us with the following words concerning our loyalties. We need to watch our loyalties, commitments, and convictions and constantly submit them to critical examination in the light of our one final loyalty to Christ Himself as Lord. Have I become overzealous in a cause which has great value but is not the only Christian priority? Have I become uncritical in my support for a particular public figure or organization, secular or Christian, so that I find myself being defensive and excusing even blatant mistakes or wrongdoing? Is my loyalty to the company I work for a healthy desire for its legitimate and honest 
success in the marketplace or an unhealthy blind acceptance of whatever it demands of me, whatever it may do to others or to principles of truth and honesty? Are my political loyalties and opinions based on prejudice or self-interest rather than a truly biblical view of God's concerns and priorities? Am I allowing my mind to be conformed to this world rather than to be transformed into the mind of Christ? Number four, the last thing that we'll see in this passage is that we are called to show the superiority of our God. We are called to show that God is better. People ought to see something different that they cannot explain. And we'll see this with Daniel throughout the whole book. He has a better appearance than those around him. He is more wise than those around him. Nobody can resolve a particular dream. Daniel does it. Because if you think about it, Babylon's natural conclusion is we beat this nation, we show that our gods are better than their gods. And God is going to show the contrary because God had determined to use this nation for his purposes. And God's going to show how, in reality, God is superior. Verse 16, it says, So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. The text is clear that it is God who gives them this knowledge. We see in the New Testament that Luke describes that Jesus grew. This has been one of my prayers in my own life in stature, in wisdom, in favor with God, and in favor with others. It's a good prayer for our own lives, to be like Jesus in that manner. Verse 18 through 21 says, Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The, teen, the king talked with them, and out of them all not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Asariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus, the king. And this word, this concept, better, better, is going to appear throughout the book. The purpose of our testimony isn't so that people think that we are morally better in ourselves, but it's so that they see that our God is better. Because Daniel is going to constantly point to God. When he interprets a dream, he says, it's not in me. God is the one that's allowed me to do this. If someone sees something different in you, we are to point them to God. Because in ourselves, there's nothing good. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, you'll hear this later in future sermons, chapter 2 through 4, we're going to see a progress where he has a different view that's progressing of the God of Israel. He is going to finally recognize that God is, the God of Israel is above, and he is superior over all gods. 
We are, true believers are a minority in the world. It always has been that way. People that are truly converted throughout church history, we've been a minority. And the Bible paints, as history moves forward, it won't be that the whole world will be converted. It it paints a picture that is dark. History goes and gets worse. But in the midst of that, there is God's people who are a light in the darkness. But we are a minority. And we appear to be crazy to many. The academics think we do not know. It's not as if the greatest minds of this world, though there are godly people with great minds and PhDs, but it's not as if the great minds and the great institutions of this world will through their own mind and study acknowledge that God is superior, that the God of the Bible is true. Because God has told us that He is hidden his wisdom from the wise of this world. And not many of us come from that. That's what 1 Corinthians describes. But God is greater, even as it doesn't seem that way to the world. So how does the world see this? How does the world see that he is greater? Well, it's not necessarily because we have a better health or a better economy. That's the prosperity gospel. That's what a non-Christian desires anyway, apart from Christ. But what it is, is that we have, and I'm going to explain what I mean by this, we have a better life. A non-Christian should ultimately look at my life and see a better life. That there is greater diligence in my job than a non-Christian. There should be. Why? Because the motivation in Scripture is that we serve not just my boss, but we serve Christ. That is our motivation. So I should be more diligent in my job. That there is to be greater depths in my family relationships because of the gospel. There is to be humility. We are to be the most humble people on earth. Often that's not the case. Professing believers are not humble. But that's a contradiction to the gospel. One of the ways that we show that we have a God who is better is our humility because it is just acknowledging the reality of who we are and who God is. Two things are true at the same time. We we believe our faith is superior. Now, how is that not arrogant? We believe that our God is superior. We believe that there is no religion like Christianity. There is no thought, system of thought like Christianity. We believe that no religion will save us apart from Christ. How is that not arrogant in a pluralistic world? We believe the gods of the Bible can satisfy as no one else can. So how is it that we have humility even as we proclaim that? Because the believer, when he understands correctly what God has revealed in his word, he understands that if he has a more stable marriage, a family that is... Not perfect, but a family that is being changed by the principles of God's Word. It doesn't, he can't take the credit for him because it is the Bible that has given him instructions to be that way. He has the Bible to instruct the cross to save, the gospel to sanctify and liberate, the Holy Spirit to fill and equip. It's his God that has made the difference. And so that is how the Christian can be both humble and at the same time point that our God is superior. 
that we are to live in such a way that in our workplace, in our relationships, people see that's something I don't normally see. There's a humility. We are to love better. We are to be kinder than those who don't have Christ because we have the gospel, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the church, we have the scriptures. So we are to be reminded of these things, brothers and sisters, that we are here in a foreign land, no matter what country we're living in. And there's seasons throughout church history where there's nations like this nation where we've had the blessing to enjoy so much goodness of the fruit of a Christian worldview. But it's always been the case that Christians are foreigners, and we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded that we are to live in the midst of this hostile world, and we are to not defile ourselves. We are to be pure. We are to be different. And we do that by coming to Christ. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. And through all of this, we can show that God, our God, is greater, is better. There is a better way, and it's through a relationship with the living God of the Bible. Let us pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word that is clear, that is a light for our path. I pray that you would help us to be reminded of our citizenship, be reminded that we feel it even more than ever perhaps in this country, the darkness and the hostility. And yet your word hasn't changed. Your promises haven't changed. You are on the throne and nothing nothing catches you by surprise. You knew these days were coming. You have sovereignly orchestrated using all things for your purposes. All of history is moving towards the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we wait for that blessed day when you will return and establish your kingdom and the kingdoms of this world will no longer be here, but the kingdom of God will last forever, we are ambassadors We have the joy of coming together and being reminded from your word and worshiping together and then scattering and being a light. And so help us to do that well this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.